don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, introducing ARPA, Applied Research Practices in Architecture, with Janet Kim and Troy Conrad Terrian. Today I have two guests, uh, Janet Kim and uh, Troy Terrien, uh, who I will introduce uh, uh, right now one by one. But uh, hello guys. Hi. Hi. Great to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so Janet is, uh, is a director, the current director of uh, the ARPA initiative at uh, Columbia University, uh, I mean, which is hosted by Columbia University and uh, also the founder and the editor-in-chief of the ARPA journal that we're going to talk about today that we'll, we will use it as a, as a sort of uh, spine for a conversation, our conversation. And uh, Troy is uh, currently an adjunct professor at uh, Columbia University in the School of Architecture as well, and uh, also the, the co-founder of uh, Terrien Barley, which is a, a practice of uh, innovation consultancy um, so uh, and and I'm sorry I should say Troy, Troy is the, the, the guest editor of the second issue of ARPA journal uh, and uh, so to proceed in this conversation we will begin in uh, introducing um, introducing uh, what the journal uh, tries to achieve in terms of editorial line and then we'll, we'll look at those two first uh, issues uh, individually. Uh, so Janet, I'm uh, turning to you for this introduction. Uh, 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 could, you, could you maybe uh, uh, lay down for us uh, uh, the, the various components of this editorial line for this journal? Yeah. And maybe tell us what the acronym, the acronym <laughs> stands for. That sounds good. With every acronym, you always forget to actually <laughs> hear what the words are. Um, but ARPA journal stands for Applied Research Practices in Architecture. And um, basically, the journal is organized around uh, questions of what research means. And I think it starts from this sense that research plays such a big role in architectural practice and discourse and in uh, education. And yet it's a word that we don't really investigate or interrogate. And I think we sometimes assume that we know what it means. And I think we just really wanted to open that up. And you know, at once try to celebrate practices, like really innovative, interesting practices that are happening out there. But also really ask more critically, what, when, we, when we say the word research, what are we really talking about? And, and hopefully try to open up um, the next steps for uh, in, uh, innovation or the sort of more critical or thoughtful, thing, thoughtful approaches after that. Um, so more specifically, I could say, just for the background of the journal, um, about six years ago, Mabel Wilson started um, this initiative that was at the time called uh, Advanced Architectural Research at GSAP um, at Columbia. And basically what it is, is it's a, it gives students a chance to uh, stay at a school for one year following their master's program and continue a project that they're interested in pursuing on an independent uh, level. And it really becomes the kind of foundation for their practice, for their teaching, their scholarship afterwards. And I think it's a nice way to kind of launch people out into the world and really have a project. So I, I took over the, the what was AAR a year ago and I renamed it uh, ARPA um, for two reasons. Um, one that I wanted to focus, I wanted to really question what 
the word application meant. And then maybe we could talk about that a little bit more um, in a bit. Um, secondly, I wanted to recognize that there was such a thing as research practice. Um, that um, if you look at scholarship and historical scholarship and you look at design practice, let's say for clients or um, for, uh, well, and under the client model, what, how does research fit into this? Mm -hmm. uh, a kind of unsolicited practice in which we start to set up agendas that aren't necessarily laid out for an architect. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask like how the, the focus of practice would work. And then from this context then, you might see research as First of all, something that's totally fundamental to any studio practice, right? So you do a studio on X, name the city, name the topic, right? And you go you and you... Student studios, right? Yeah, yeah that's at right. schools, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sorry. In the school context. Yeah. Um, so you start with stu stu uh, city X, you know, topic X, and mm. what do you do? You try to research it, try to understand the background of this topic. At the same time, you have all of these people who are doing, I don't know, let's say... Uh, launching a white paper for the studies of densities in cities or um, testing how human rights would relate to housing policy and on and on and on. So I feel like there's all this work happening around trying to inform practice, trying to make architectural work relevant and connected. Um, and yet at the same time, I feel as though we as architects are have inherited all of these techniques from other disciplines. So we conduct interviews as a sociologist might, or we do material testing or you know, optimization, energy optimization tests as an engineer might. And yet as architects, I don't know that we've really articulated what research practice or skills would mean to us. So that was the question. That was mm -hmm. like, we know it's a big part of education. We know it's a big part of practice. And in fact, it might be, research might be the key for us to kind of expand the boundaries of our own practice mm -hmm. but what are we doing with that you know like I, 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 that was the question for me and I'm just hoping to sort of interrogate these questions enough that we can now launch the next set of practices mm -hmm. and so uh, just uh, in a very uh, uh, at a very down-to-earth level uh, this is a very recent uh, publication that you started uh, and uh, can you tell us when it started and, and what is there, the format that it's taking? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we launched our first issue in May of this year, 2014. Um, and uh, the next issue, which Troy is editing, which is called Search Engines, um, will come out in October of this year. Um, and then will probably be followed by performance, uh, an issue on performance in uh, January of next year. Um, and the structure of the journal is, well, first it's online, um, and we wanted to take advantage of the online media to be kind of both fast and slow. Um, so it's fast in the sense that there's a dialogue between one author and another, and we're posting conversations on our website. And it's slow in the sense that we're, you know, a, a lot of the articles range from somewhere like uh, between, let's say, 2,000 to 6,000 words. And so there's an attempt to just kind of take your time with the medium and, and really get into research questions. Um, the way it's structured is that each issue um, focuses on a technique of research. So I mentioned search engines and performance. Um, the first issue was also uh, um, test subjects. And we could also look at questions like funding or... Um, um, oh shoot, I just forgot the other ones. <laughs> um, other techniques of research. Um, and within each issue, um, we have three releases, so three, three formats. Um, the first month 
we release um, critiques, which are essays, um, uh, photo essays, maps, any kind of work on research projects created by anyone other than the author. So they're an attempt to kind of analyze how other people are doing research. And then the second release is called Projects, in which the author has produced the research project that's being discussed. And then the third release is called Debates, and that's a kind of online forum for us, us meaning the editors, the contributors, but also readers and members of the public to hopefully contribute their conversation, their, their thoughts in a more informal way. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think, uh, uh, yes, if we have uh, the introduction to this journal, we can, we can jump right into uh, uh, the specific issues themselves. And uh, it probably would be too logical to do uh, first the first one and then second the second one, so we can do the opposite for uh, little uh, logistic reasons. But uh, so uh, Troy, you're you're the guest editor of the of this second issue um, that uh, Janet just uh, introduced as uh, being uh, about uh, search engines, uh, uh, which uh, at least to me is relatively um, mysterious and. Uh, also based on, on a, a, a very uh, uh, big bag of ignorance from my end, but so so uh, could you could you very simply uh, uh, tell us what this issue will be about because uh, the issue is not is not online yet. So maybe maybe yeah, that's the first thing we should say. When when will it be online? I was hoping I was hoping you want to ask. Um, <laughs> yeah, I almost <laughs> forgot. Uh, well, without committing to anything. Uh, Necessarily, but we're, we're we're looking to launch at the the very beginning of October. Um, with okay, the that's a fairly recent, yeah. Yeah, so it's coming up soon. Fairly soon, yeah. Um, actually, conducting a couple of interviews later this week, but um, some of the pieces that are coming in are already looking pretty great. Um, so I guess like the, the to answer your question, the kind of most basic level is really the search engine. The the topic is um, really coming from like Google. Um, and actually, we, Jeanette and I had the conversation early on: is it the search engine or search engines? Um, and I kind of like the the singular with Google with 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 just the, the search engine in, in that it allows you to kind of think of it as as an object as mm -hmm. a kind of model, but also um, thinking about I think Google is a kind of interesting case study one that we kind of can't ignore in this project and and Google owns something like ninety percent of search, mm -hmm. so I think that just at the basic level the level of kind of knowledge and of research in my mind is sort of, you know sort of a kind of like a means of knowledge production right. Mm -hmm. Um, so Google so is basically a, a theology almost uh, to this point, uh, the singular of the the search engine. Well, that, I, Google Google is sort of a form of deity uh, in the 21st <laughs> century. So yes, there's definitely a theology there. Um, I think that uh, uh, the fact that one company and with it one algorithm and one interface can be the front door to knowledge um, is is kind of terrifying and is being uh, uh, excavated in so many other disciplines. And I think that. Um, what really kind of struck a chord with me when I was talking to Jeanette about the search engine was I've been teaching classes in, in the past year or so looking at um, the kind of rise of physical computing. So um, physical devices that are actually extracting information out of the air, out of uh, temperature and pressure and all kinds of things. Um, um, and, and I think that the, the, that ability has been around for a little while, and I think it's really starting to kind of turn the corner on commercialization. So you have products actually recently bought out by Google for $3.2 billion is the Nest thermostat, um, which was a couple of people from Apple that were designers of the original iPod that decided to go into home electronics, and they designed a new, smarter, more, more beautiful thermostat. 
Um, and so now you have a thermostat that has 20 some odd sensors inside of it that are in your apartment that are sending that data back to somebody in Palo Alto um, so that they can turn your heat up and down so you don't have to. Um, and it's all kind of under the, 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 the rhetoric of optimization. Um, um, but really, I mean, the, the, these things are starting to enter into architectural space. Um, and there's a lot of debate around privacy and security, especially kind of in the post-Snowden kind of sensitivity era. Um, but I think that architects uh, haven't really delved into what the possibilities are for the fundamentals of the discipline. So just how do we draw a plan? Um, how, do you, how do you draw a section? How do you, what, what do you spec? Like what goes into the kind of construction document process? Um, when these things are starting to become kind of talking living objects in space that are transforming it and actually doing, I think, um, some of the things that, or would be able to verify some of the things that architects want to kind of found their practice on. Um, so I think like one of the most uh, uh, easy to point out research practices is, is the work of the kind of the Dutch school and, and obviously OMA. Um, and, and, you know, Rem Koolhaas doing a kind of research practice in the 90s at Harvard and even earlier in, in, in Rotterdam. Um, the search engine, if you just look at the, the sources they're citing and the way that they're doing research, I mean, it's clear that the web kind of became a way for them to really quickly grab information um, and, and turn that into a, a hypothesis, an argument about the way that space would perform. Um, and now you kind of start to close that loop where you can actually get the data back on how space is performing. And I haven't seen the ripple effects in architecture yet. I haven't seen people drawing plans differently, making arguments differently, and so on. So for me personally, I think that there's, at the level of just architecture and design and research, I think there's a, a really kind of clear paths to talking about and through the search engine. Um, yeah, so I guess the mm -hmm. kind of long-winded answer to your no, short question. Uh, uh, but maybe maybe to, to, to follow up on, on, on your introduction is that uh, um, would you be able to maybe give us a little bit of a, of a preview of what the issue itself might be and, uh, and with uh, potential contributors? So you, you were saying you have a few interviews to conduct in, in, the, in the few coming days. So right. I suppose you already have a, a little idea of, of what the journal will look like. Yeah, so there, there's definitely some people that have, we, we've had in, the, in this one, we've had a number of submissions. So there's people that are kind of off working on the abstracts that they've crafted and we'll check in with them soon. Um, there's a couple of other people that we've been more kind of back and forth with to really kind of hone down what we think might, um, being a kind of young, new journal, um, it, it, it is a bit of kind of legwork to really talk to people and get them to understand the perspective of the journal and how we want them to contribute, which is actually a nice uh, 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 approach as an editor, I think. That's the way that I, I'm interested in working. Um, and one of the people that, that was kind of fundamental to the thinking is actually going to contribute, and that's an interview I'm doing tomorrow with um, David Jocelyn. Um, who's a, uh, recently came over from Yale to the Graduate Center um, at uh, the City University of New York. Who's um, he's an editor of October Magazine and uh, a kind of art historian, a, a kind of active art uh, critic, and so on. Um, and he recently wrote a book two years ago called After Art um, that was looking at um, uh, how do you kind of theorize art through uh, kind of like I saw it as kind of two axes that were kind of colliding. One is um, practices in the art market, so the kind of you know, explosion of the value of art, even surviving the 2008-2009 financial crisis and so on, um, with also the, the kind of change in image culture, so the kind of pure saturation of image culture uh, as a result of kind of access through the internet. Um, and so what, what, what in that book, he, he uh, the kind of, at the kind of uh, centerpiece of that book is this concept of the epistemology of search. So he talks about it really from 
kind of uh, uh, through the lens of art kind of historical criticism, um, uh, uh, this, this phenomena, this kind of like change in the way that we deal with knowledge and the fact that search really is the kind of front door to knowledge, but it's also kind of democratizing force and it, and it kind of unleashes this deluge of, of resources of, of an archive that previously we couldn't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he tries to put that in the context of art and architecture. And, and, and what I really want to kind of tease out of that interview is I think he, he really structures things as a theorist. So there's a lot of kind of like uh, um, categories and, 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 and hypotheses that come out that, that are really kind of levied towards art. Um, and then architecture seems to be kind of entailed. So what I want to go through with him is really what if, if he's really spent a lot of time thinking about the consequences for art of this, what he's calling the epistemology of search as a kind of contemporary epistem, um, you know, what does it really mean for architecture? Or is, is there a difference between art and architecture in this case? Um, and so for that, that, for me, that would be the kind of like, that, that's the kind of leading um, essay or interview for the, the critiques, because um, I think that really sets the stage. Um, and then there's a, a, a few others that are looking more specifically. There, there's an article looking at um, uh, Jacqueline Terwitt, which I'm really excited about, who was, um, I'm going to get this probably wrong, but she was something like the research assistant to Marshall McLuhan. Um, and then she went to Greece and she worked under Constantine Doxiadis to edit the Acoustics Journal, which was um, a journal from the post-war period that I think was um, uh, covered really nicely in the first issue, um, this kind of moment of the explosion of research and architecture. Um, and then uh, uh, went to Harvard, and basically she was this kind of international kind of uh, connector that was connecting people like McLuhan and Fuller and Doxiadis, and people really at the center of this kind of explosion of, of, of different forms of thinking in terms of information technology and research. Mm-hmm. Um, s- since since uh, I think many of our listeners are not uh, are not coming from the architectural world, I, I just would like to to uh, ask you if you could describe. Uh, a little bit more precisely, maybe what, how, um, how this has architectural incidences that, as you were mentioning, we mm-hmm. actually don't quite see yet. But uh, how this is, uh, we are absolutely not talking about designing their Google yeah. headquarters or anything like that. But how, how there is a, a, a potential for uh, going from going from uh, this type of practices and this type of research to actually the production of, uh, of space. And I mean, Jenna, you, you should feel very free to jump in as well if you, if you want to. I, I, think, I, think, I think you're really getting to the crux of it in that Jeanette and I met the other day to look at um, precisely the kind of group of, of, of people that I had selected in the first round and she had the same question. <laughs> Um, and I think that that might be a little bit of my own personal tick to kind of almost take architecture as a given. Um, and so I think what we're really trying to do is to kind of buttress that with the, the second phase, the, the projects phase. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the list of, of, of contributors in front of me at the moment. There, there's, there's one I think that'll be um, quite interesting, uh, kind of going the opposite direction. So really starting within architecture and then kind of going in a different direction, which is a, a conversation with Jorge Otero Pios who's a professor at Columbia and, and uh, in the Historic Preservation Program. So an architect who's also kind of um, uh, an artist and, 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 and but more specifically a, a preservationist. Um, and so we're going to be looking at um, the kind of the, the, 
the original kind of codification of, of monuments, so uh, cultural heritage um, from the 18th century forward um, as a kind of construct and, and something that didn't exist previously and so it was created um, based on conditions, conditions of war, different types of conditions. Um, and so what would be the kind of uh, conditions today by which you would think about monuments in a different way, um, such as Google, like what would be a cultural monument through the eyes of Google? Um, and so that, that's kind of not going towards design. I guess that's going away from design artifacts and to back into the kind of digital space. Um, but I think that the, the, maybe the reason why you're picking this up also is just personally um, coming out of, I was previously, uh, the last job I did before I came into architecture was in computational mathematics. Um, so coming into architecture, the idea that you would find an area of interest and then design a building for it always felt unsatisfying to me. Um, but I think that in, in the project section, there's, there's a project by Abruzzo Bodziak, um, local architects, that um, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small dwelling. It's like a very, very kind of uh, a very singular piece of architecture that it's the context around the way that they talk about it and the process by which they produced it that comes back to search. So I think that in the project section, we'll be talking very specifically about design. Um, but I think it might still be a bit of a blind spot in the way that, that, that critiques are shaping up. Maybe to try to contextualize that too, um, I think we've had many discussions about why the search engine is the second issue, and um, it seems right to us that we would start with the, the f most dominant instrument of research that we have in front of us, we being all people, <laughs> right? Like, uh, all, uh, the use of the search engine is, is not, of course, it's, it's, it's global, right? So if anybody wants to find out about I don't know, let's say housing policy or um, demographic distribution or um, the, whether people, I don't know, live in a certain way or not. It's like one begins the search with a search engine. And because it's so dominant in our ways of thinking, we thought we would try to take that on. So, for example, if you think about historical scholarship or research being um, historically rooted in the archive. Um, so if you go to, the, let's say, Buckminster Fuller's archive to find out about his work, um, what do we do now? And so in some ways, the search engine has replaced the archive as a source of knowledge, and it has its own techniques. Like, it has its own tendencies to find certain responses or to make connections between one form of knowledge and another or to cross between one medium and another. And so it's going to structure all of this knowledge in the same way that, say, Buckminster Fuller's archive would. And so we wanted to investigate that. But then also, I think wanted, we wanted to understand that this wasn't just a passive process in which we were using the search engine as a device to get information about the city, but we were also realizing that the archive was itself constructed by the city itself. Um, so, um, uh, I don't know, let's say the, um, the way that marketplaces operate in the city, either as something that's visible or not trackable, um, becomes then a problem for the search engine. Um, so are there ways in which the map or data or um, blogs or personal stories make them make their way into a kind of official or unofficial record of a marketplace. I think that gets complicated by the ways that um, an economic exchange could be vis visualized through architecture or not. So I think that that's a that's the flip side of the equation, which is that the search engine is the kind of result of the physical environment. Yeah, I mean maybe I'll just echo that a little bit. There, there was there's kind of throughout we've had this this like looming uh, dream for a, a kind of 
what we've been calling our Cracker Jack. So our, each issue has a kind of little quirk oh, that like... I always forget to talk about the secret form, the secret Am format I running of our it? journal. No, 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 Should please I? do. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll try to do it justice. But ba basically, if, if you read long enough, you'll be kind of pleasantly surprised by a gift from the editors um, that kind of appears on the screen. And that's all I'm going to say, because then people have I to did, go. I did see that, and I was dazzled by it. Did you click on it? <laughs> no, that's This why. is the problem. Okay. Please click on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I actually thought my computer was being hacked. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we got, we got halfway where we wanted to okay. with you. <laughs> Um, we do have your passwords for everything now, but um, but so the, the idea is that Cracker Jack is this thing that sort of pops up and then it takes you to this kind of uh, additional piece of like kind of hidden information. And, and the dream for this one was um, the, 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 the outgoing dean of the architecture school, Mark Wigley. Um, I've had a number of conversations. He was actually recently in the Buckminster Fuller archives, uh, a kind of Fuller scholar about to release a new book on Fuller. Um, and, and we were talking about the way that he uses search because basically Google search has become so predictive uh, it, 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 it's, it's normalizing. So even when you start typing in something, it's going to guess what you want. And no matter what you try to misspell or how you try to move the words around, um, you really almost can't hack Google anymore. Back in the day, you could be a good Googler. Now you can just be a Googler. So it, it's really kind of like, it's, it's consuming 90% of, of our search attention and it's giving 90% of us the same results for very different uh, requests. So, so Mark Wigley has a kind of technique that he uses to get around that, including different types of kind of proxy servers for searches that go through like arrays of old forms of search. So like really digging up like early Yahoo search um, to basically get at the stuff that nobody else is getting at. The weird stuff that was somebody's grandfather's manuscript that they scanned from the attic after they passed away to put on eBay that then got sold and lost, like that image is still out there somewhere. And Google doesn't think it's important because no one's clicked on it in 10 years, but Ask Jeeves maybe does. So there's ways of finding these weird bits and pieces of, of knowledge at the kind of the, the, the ephemera, the, the kind of the limits or the, the edges, the margins. Um, that I think like search engine, there's also the kind of search engine practices, like how do people try to like steer this thing um, to not just give them the banal, the same as everybody else. Okay, uh, well, the, the little logistic uh, thing we had to deal with that I was mentioning earlier is basically try, <laughs> you have to go, so I won't, I won't, we won't be trying to make uh, a sneaky editing to put you at the, <laughs> at the end of the <laughs> podcast. But, uh, but so th thank you very much for your time and uh, we you. will continue this conversation with Jeanette about uh, the, first, the first issue. Great, thank you. So let's continue this conversation uh, uh, with uh, Jeanette Kim uh, and, uh, and let's talk now about the, the one issue that actually is already out. So that's, that's a little bit easier in the fact that we are going to be able to to link it and uh, and uh, and um, the listeners uh, would be able to to go through this first issue that has the three phases you were talking about there um, uh, and as this first issue was entitled uh, test subjects I got interested in this idea of a test subject um, because it's partly because it seems so perverse you know that you would have somebody conducting a, let's say, a psychological experiment, and just like you and I are sitting in this really weird white booth of a mm. room right now, <laughs> um, you would have we, somebody... Yeah. We can tell the listeners that it's, <laughs> it's one of those rooms that a few of my guests have been describing because it, it is particularly austere in, in the New York Public Library, but 
well the the sound the sound it works pretty well so <laughs> but yeah please go ahead i'm sorry so you can imagine like a psychologist running an experiment yeah. with the children Be behind or, the glass there yeah exactly yeah. someone on the one one-way glass and yeah. in a way there's a very curious and bizarre sort of social hierarchy and uh, a kind of relationship between the researcher and the subject in the case of architecture, it's very complicated because we don't usually think that we have test subjects. But of course, if we're going to say, if we're going to claim that every building is a kind of experiment, then there is a test subject for that mm -hmm. experiment. And if you start to think of architecture as a test subject, you start uh, as as a thing that has test subjects. You start to realize that we are experimenting all the time in the real world. Um, sometimes with fantastic consequences, sometimes with horrifying consequences, sometimes with ones effects that aren't seen for decades um, but are felt later. Um, so I just wanted to raise that question mm -hmm. really to tie back to the focus on application and research um, and ask a little bit about how we take responsibility for those responses, the, those effects, um, and how, how we kind of deliberately try to engage in the publics that we work with. Um, so that was really the uh, impetus behind the, mm -hmm. the topic. And so something something we could say as well is that there the, the discursively the, the notion of experimentation is extremely uh, uh, trendy let's say in in the architectural academy for for the last i don't know maybe 10 years 15 years 20 years who, who knows but uh, uh, um, there there is there is very much a, a sense of of actually uh, not questioning very much this notion of experiments, accepting it. It's it's usually it's usually uh, a word used for uh, a sort of uh, avant-garde uh, mm -hmm. type of research in architecture. When actually, when you when you come to think about it, uh, uh, it very much situates the architects back to a position of of a sort of demiurge. I mean, a, a sort of god. That I mean, the the plan itself, the, the architectural plan, is such a, a, a vision down and mm -hmm. I always I always talk about those uh, the, the the god architects looking at the little his little guinea pig uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 in advance looking looking at his or her plan mm -hmm. uh, um, of that will be the, the subject of uh, his or her experimentation so there there is uh, there is this uh, I, su I suppose that's what relates to the sense of uh, responsibilities that you were you were talking about uh. yeah it reminds me a bit of um well, I, I think in many ways, when we, when we use this kind of the word experimentation and we kind of accept this kind of avant-garde legacy, there seems to be an assumption that new is somehow, accept, like that's it, that's good, that's acceptable, that that would be a, an, a gauge of success. Um, and I wonder if, I always try to stop myself from saying the word new as though it were good, because I want to question that. And um, I wonder if, for example, we could introduce other gauges of success. Um, so, for example, um, um, well, actually, uh, sorry, this isn't quite a question of the new, but um, in reference to the the kind of role of the architect as a kind of controlling agent that you were referring to, um, there's a really nice piece in this issue um, uh, by an anthropologist called Goki Guno, um, and the piece is called um, Mazdar City's Hidden Brain, and she has spent a lot of time in Mazdar um, uh, basically observing this process um, in which the um, uh, the kind of uh, um, the what are we, uh, the facility managers of Mazdar Institute mm -hmm. 
set up a smart thermostat, going back to Troy's comment about the smart thermostat, um, that would at once gather so much data about the way people used heating and cooling, or in this case, master of just cooling, <laughs> um, cooling and electricity, that they could then figure out how to optimize the use of energy better. And um, so they set up this kind of thermostat system and um, started to kind of monitor the behavior of these students living in the dormitory. And the students themselves felt monitored, they felt watched, and they kind of talked a lot about um, feeling as though they themselves were test subjects. Um, and at the same time that this is happening, the manager of the system isn't exactly just gathering information, he's using the system to kind of produce behavioral modification. Mm -hmm. And so whereas one person might have a certain standard of comfort and another has another standard of comfort, um, this facilities manager is trying to convince people to live in a quote-unquote green way and use this thermostat system to kind of correct people. And I think that's a great example of mm -hmm. a way in which the, under the guise of gathering information, we actually attempt to kind of you know, modify, as I just said. We, we should probably say that, uh, just talk a little bit about Masdor itself being uh, oh, yeah, a, yeah. A, new, a new city in the Emirates, uh, built, built literally from scratch in the middle of the desert, by, uh, mostly by Norman yeah. Foster, I think. Uh, and, um, and that because of, of this novelty and because of this holistic design by, by one architectural office, uh, is is able more than anything else to to have this degree of control and this degree of experimentation is that is that right yes perfect yeah. Yeah. um so so that was one of the one of the examples but there's many more in there in this first issue yeah and i think um if Gunnell's piece um i think describes what we might think more traditionally of a sense of the test subject and all of the kind of attendant problems with that model um, there are others in which the role of the test subject and the role of the architect, I think, gets really opened up. And um, I think Andres Hacke is a great example of that. Um, so he's the Spanish architect who actually just won the award uh, as the, uh, for, I think, the best research project in the Venice Biennial this mm. year. Um, so I was very excited to see research on the page. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he, um, he wrote a piece um, about a project that he did quite a long time ago, actually, um, in which he um, created a kind of interface to the Peter Eisenman uh, design for uh, in Santiago de Compostela, this kind of huge cultural center. Mm. In Galicia. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, the objective behind the project was to kind of communicate to the public what was happening in this kind of, what was seen as an eyesore of a, of a kind of construction site that would be there for years and years. And they asked him to design a fence to block the, the construction site. And he said, we don't need a fence. We just need to communicate what's actually happening on the site. And so he was able to um, talk about supply chains and funding strategies um, that had brought money into this, this project. Um, he was able to talk about labor pools kind of connected to this major project in the middle of the city. And basically start to bring in players from the city, neighbors, uh, uh, members of the public, and sort of fold into this process their own attitudes towards this project and its role in the city and their decisions about where funding should go on, go and so on. And I think that was very much a case in which the test subject isn't really so much a subject anymore, um, but he's setting up a structure within which he's sort of engaging in real time to uh, people who are affected by this construction project. Mm. Um, I also 
I was also looking at one um, of uh, the, the one written by uh, Lee Meisterling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I got uh, it. Leo Meisterling. Meisterling, yeah. Who who was um, who was precisely uh, cri- critiquing uh, the idea that urbanism might be a, might be a form of experiment? Maybe you can tell us more about that. Yeah, it's a. I think her her piece was probably the most um, let's say aggressive kind of op-ed piece, in which she was basically saying that we should never be uh, subjecting people to tests without their authorization, and that if the psychologist who has the child behind the one-way glass got a release form signed and a kind of uh, uh, compliance from that test subject, architects similarly need some form of, of um, authorization and um, uh, kind of awareness from the part of the participant. And so she was trying to sort of point into um, ethical codes within planning and architecture and pointing to the need for a way, uh, not necessarily in, in the language of code, but for a kind of more systematic way in which we would um, inform people that we are quote-unquote testing on um, about what the experiment is, what the unknowns are, because there will always be unknowns in the test, and only be able to kind of proceed in that way. Um, and so you might, one might kind of critique that as uh, cautious, but in a way I think she's also really trying to celebrate risk-taking um, um, only in the, stru- in the structure in which the public is aware of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think the, the sort of um, uh, uh, the counterpart of this of this one uh, essay might might be seen in the in the work of uh, on the one hand uh, Kilian Riano and on the other hand uh, uh, another another past guest of uh, Archipelago uh, uh, Lucia Halan Oyasun in uh, in their work specifically on the public space and and trying trying to trying to lead an experiment that I would describe as uh, where the person who's experimenting is, is very much, uh, 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 no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a step back, but I, I suppose what the, the way a, a scientific experiment is being conducted is usually in the demonstration of an hypothesis. So there is a kind of uh, form of, uh, sort of uh, axiomatic, uh, well, not axiomatic actually, but a sort of a pre- premise uh, mm-hmm. uh, of a hypothesis that would lead to experimentation that will either confirm or deny the hypothesis. But here, in the case of public space and the work of those two of those two people I, I just mentioned, uh, um, the person who's experimenting ver- ha- has very little idea where this might. Leads so there. It's not just about confirming or denying an hypothesis. It's more about producing something through the experiment. Do do I get that right? Super interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the way I uh, think about what you're describing is that um, if there needs to be some kind of a priori to an experiment, and you say, okay, we can agree on this much. Uh, we agree that we need to build a park in Corona, and I'm kind of referring to the work by Killian Riano. Um, we might agree that we need a park in Corona, Queens, in New York City, but we don't know what, uh, um, you know, what the programming should be or what kind of activities should take place here. And if we could think of that as a kind of uh, like a basis for experimentation, then I think what's really interesting about what Killian does and what, what Lucia does um, is that they kind of open up those 
expectations from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So Killian might really challenge the idea that one needs a park in Corona um, and really opens that question up for the public. So it, that might take away any sense of the reliance that Leah Meisterlin is arguing for, but at the same time it empowers people who live in these neighborhoods to kind of take on these really challenging questions and not have the question formed before they get to the, to the site. I'm being a bit abstract, but I, I guess... No, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, the way I understand what you're saying is almost that uh, uh, it's, it, it might bring more uh, value in the experimentation moment itself than in what the experimentation allow uh, af after it, mm -hmm. right? That's interesting, because in Killian's example, he had set up um, a series of temporary structures that encouraged people to come and sort of not just voice an opinion, but form an opinion through their conversation. Um, and so he would have these kind of, uh, like a, almost like a game, like a game board, a series of, of, of uh, pieces in a game board, and he would ask people to organize them according to what they thought mattered. So they would talk about, you know, um, their experiences with childcare or their relationships between um, like ge different generations in a family, for example. And that would be what mattered, not whether you wanted a fountain or, you know, a picnic bench in, in this park. And that was the discussion that came out of that. And then I remember him saying that um, one of the recommendations they made to the, to the Parks Department and the Department of Transportation was to build a table for discussion within the park that would allow this conversation to happen. So I feel like that points to what you're saying. Like, mm -hmm. you know, well, also some things that I that I particularly I was particularly interested in this example uh, of uh, Corona Queens is that uh, uh, I mean we see many many experiments like that and and some of them tends to be a little bit too uh, uh, how to say um, too naive maybe about the way they're conducting uh, this kind of. Uh, um, what what they themselves would call democratic experiments, which actually uh, it may be interesting as well to question this mm -hmm. this aspect of things. Yeah. But uh, someone like Kirian actually um, uh, uh, talks about how this square is actually known known there by uh, men of colors as being a, a particularly intense s uh, site of uh, stop and frisk by the New York uh, mm -hmm. New York Police Department. So I mean, it, it is it is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more complex than just uh, oh what what would you like on this park uh, what what would be good and uh, yeah which 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 color would you like the fountain to be <laughs> or I, I yeah. mean I'm I'm obviously exaggerating but uh, there's there's also problems of um, problem of uh, policing and problem of, of racism uh, that are that were very much involved in this process so I think I think that's that's probably also one aspect of this, uh, the empowerment you were talking about that, that, that is extremely important to go through. I think, and actually to generalize from that point too, um, it does seem like, like there is this kind of well-worn well path of research which, which uh, operates under the, the kind of, with this dream of being dem democratic as you're describing. And so you would say, I just need a, uh, a questionnaire that's good enough and then I can understand what the people think mm -hmm. right or um, yeah th th that there would somehow be this idea that research would unearth these found opinions and I think what Killian does so well is that he recognizes that the opinions only occur sort of through the discussion itself and I think 
Anders Hacke's work with, um, uh, there's an interview with Anders Hacke, which is separate than the piece I just mentioned, in which he describes the way that he uses interviews to influence um, his work with clients and, and, and publics in a different way. And um, um, what you start to see is that you, these, these researchers aren't just seeing the public as a kind of found object and a set of found opinions, almost in parallel to the way, uh, this is kind of a hard parallel to draw, but almost in parallel to the way that one might say, um, look at material science and look at the bending <laughs> you know, uh, performance of, of, of steel and say, aha, I have the number and now I know exactly what to do. I think in both cases, there's an attempt to find authority in some kind of known quantity and then distill from that a conclusion that has then uh, legitimacy because of that kind of proof. And I think what interests me a lot about really like, oh, I, think it's, I think it's very exciting about all of the, the research projects that are discussed here is that that form of legitimacy is, is itself questioned. And then the architect then comes in as a kind of interpreter, as a kind of provocateur that's producing a reaction that could never have existed before the architect did something. Mm -hmm. um, so what I mean by that is that um, for Anders Hacke, for example, he doesn't expect, so Anders Hacke does a series of interviews um, uh, with people talking about their domestic lives. And then he connects this into really innovative designs, especially in what's a very, very well-published project, the IKEA Disobedience Project. He's interpreting that into really um, non-normative ways of living. Um, and what he talks about is that he doesn't just go to people and ask about their domestic life, where do you sleep, how many bedrooms do you need, etc. Um, but he starts to ask sort of provocative questions that ask about supply chains or about da daughters that live far away or about, um, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, practices that happen after you go running and before you go to work. That He's asking probing questions that people wouldn't typically ask to start to unravel ideas about living that, um, that, aren't, uh, that are unexpected. And then similarly, he's kind of using these designs like a, I don't know, a bizarro table or, or a kind of communal kitchen structure to kind of push people's expectations of what living is and then provoke a response in turn. So I think that's a case in which we're not looking at a passive body of information. We're actually looking at the architect as someone who's, um, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself a bit, no. but an ar the architect is someone who's kind of um, almost producing a kind of spectacle that in itself has value to that, um, to that public. Uh, and maybe just to add something to that is that uh, we, we are, there, there is always a, a problem of visibility within the architectural uh, world as well. So yeah, there we, uh, just like we were talking about the 90% the of us getting always the same result in Google, is that uh, we always talk about very similar uh, architects who've been uh, 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 leading a certain branch of work, but I cannot I cannot have this discussion without mentioning uh, the work uh, that Patrick Bouchin is doing in France, and he is not very he doesn't he doesn't speak English, and I don't I don't think he's very interested in in being exported <laughs> so to speak anywhere anywhere else in the world, but I, I think I think in in terms of uh, in terms of linking architecture within its its kind of creative and democratic process, he he remains very much an authority 
in in that matter. So I, I probably mm. will try mm. to 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 uh, add a, a, a link or anything on the page with that. Maybe just to conclude the conver the conver this conversation, uh, could, uh, I could have maybe have you speak for uh, a few minutes about this uh, third issue that I'm uh, I'm quite excited oh. about about performance and and, and probably uh, a strong relationship to questions of bodies, which uh, I'm fascinated with. Um, that's a good, great question. I, uh, I hope to have a good answer for you very <laughs> soon because I need to re uh, release the prompt for uh, the call for submissions. Um, and uh, uh, basically the, the topic is inspired in part by um, a book called Perform or Else that came out a couple of years ago that looked at the kind of dual definitions of performance, um, both as, um, let's say the, okay, so we could look at, let's say, two definitions of performance. One, which would come more from the, from the engineering world mm. that would look at the kind of optimization of the behavior of an, a designed object. So you could say, um, we want this, you know, this thermostat to drive energy efficiency, or we want this light bulb to whatever, maximize you know, light throw for minimized uh, cost and so on. Um, and then the other definition of performance has more to do with uh, the idea of theater, of the idea that um, behaviors, responses, um, interactions, language um, are kind of brought forward as a, um, as a kind of event which could take place like within any kind of, as in theater as you would choose to define that. Mm -hmm. um, and what I think is really interesting within architecture is that architecture often bridges exactly those worlds. And I think that the classic example that I've been talking a lot about a lot with my students is the work world, which is so big right now because everyone's just talking about how to redesign the office space in relationship to the Silicon Valley world and so on. And so you could say, for example, that so many office spaces have been designed around the optimization of worker performance, right? So you would try to you know, refresh brains, increase creativity, but also decrease laziness, <laughs> decrease yeah, distraction. Very much increase control, right? Exactly. Like the, the, open, the open space office is very much a... a, a an invention, a special inventions for, uh, let's say, a supervisor to be able to control uh, his or her uh, crowd of, of workers. Absolutely, and it, it seems to it connects back to like the the kind of tailorized model, where you would literally see that as that kind of engineering definition of performance, where you'd say, I don't want to move my arm too far from this point to that point, and then so you could s sort of follow that very sort of technocratic model, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and then within the office space, even today's office space. And then the other would be exactly what you're describing, the kind of behavioral modification or kind of behavioral constraint of, let's say, do you bring your child to work or um, do you work at home and how does that influence um, the way that like, downtown San Francisco is changing as a city and so on. So uh, I'm interested in looking at the way that research defines that kind of technological performance and the kind of behavioral um, structures of performance so that's that's the goal mm. okay well Janet thank you so much for uh, uh, taking the time to introduce this uh, this journal this ARPA journal uh, that uh, that is at the very beginning of its life and um, and uh, so we'll be obviously looking forward to the second issue uh, guest edited by Troy 
was here earlier. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, so great to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks.